I'm exactly like Justin Trudeau. That's right. Thank you for noticing. Yeah. I'll show you my abs later. The listeners won't be able to see, but they are. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Enslicht. How you doing, Mickey? I'm uh, pretty good. I feel today was uh, fall is definitely here. Fall is in the air. Absolutely. And it's kind of funny because we've had a long break between recording. Of course, for our listeners, it's every two weeks, but it's been about a month and a half or something. Yeah, that's right. And I was just listening to the rough cut of the last episode, and you were talking about how we were sweating our balls off. And now it's chilly. I'm wearing a sweatshirt. Yeah, I turned on the heat in our house. I I lament this fact about Canada is that I think in the entire year, there's maybe three, maximum four weeks where you don't need either air conditioning or heating. Uh, And I wish it would be nice to just be like nothing, just natural air. Yeah, you moved to California. Let's cut to the cut to the chase here. Yes, let's talk about our beer. So actually, I'm this is an awesome uh, you know uh, segue to, to thank um, Stephen Watt. So we are now drinking a beer from a brewery called um, uh, Blood Brothers, uh, which is a local brewery right here in Toronto. And um, Stephen Watt, who is a professor of psychology at Ryerson University um, in downtown Toronto, he's an avid listener, and um, he'd been hearing with us pleading with our listeners to send us beer. And other than than the hand delivery, we were not successful, but Stephen managed to send us beer in the mail. Now, of course, he could have just driven it to your house. We're friends with him. He could have done it, but I like that he went through the ritual of sending it in the mail to show it's it's proof, an existence proof. This is possible, listeners. You too can send us beer. Um, All right, but uh, okay, what what are we drinking here? Um... Uh, Yoel, you are drinking, I think, Stephen's uh, favorite beer. It's uh, it's called a White Lies with Riesling. Um, and it's a sour ale uh, that has been, I guess, you know, uh, ages in uh, white wine uh, barrels. Um, so, so, yeah, what do you think of it? I think it's great. Uh, and, yeah, before I say anything else, thank you so much, Stephen, for going to the trouble. It's really Amazing of you. Uh, yeah, it's very tasty. Uh, it's kind of sour, tangy, refreshing. A summer beer, which is a little sad now that summer's over. But... Yeah. And do you taste any wine? No. Wine notes? No? No. Okay. No. All right. Uh, so I'm drinking a uh, a Paradise Lost uh, Guava, which is kind of funny because the last two beers we drank in our last episode also had guava. Uh, it's another sour beer. Um, that's uh, kind of they, they add a guava nectar to to to, to, to the to the mix, and also really nice, uh, you know, very pleasant tasting. Yeah, summer, I mean, really, you know, tart beer. Um, so uh, cheers. Yeah, cheers. Our main topic today is is social media, and I'm I guess I'd like to start by asking you, what do you like about social media? Because there's de- you know it seems like you can't. Uh, open the paper these days without reading about how terrible social media is. And I know that you have quite the social media presence. You were moderator of a big Facebook group about psychology and research methods. You have how many Twitter followers? Uh, I think 4,000 or so. It's adorable that you don't pretend. You pretend not to know the exact number. <laughs> I think it'd be 5,000. 4,000 or 5,000. I forget now. Yeah, right. So a lot of Twitter followers. You're very active on Twitter. In fact, 
you lock yourself out of social media when you want to work, do you not? I do. I uh, yeah. We'll, we'll may talk about that in a bit, but I, um, I, I, I have a troublesome relationship with social media. I I like it too much. Uh, so because I, you know, I have a job and I, and I have to do my work. Um, and because our work is so self-directed, uh, I have lost days and days, just like I, I call, you know, following in a, in a Twitter hole, we just kind of get lost in these conversations and reading articles and talking with people. So now I have these like internet locks, these, 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 these devices, these apps that lock me out of uh, certain apps like Twitter and Facebook even email, um, just so I can get work done. Yeah, so I guess we're gonna we're gonna be talking about the downsides as well, but I, we're supposed to be staying on the upside. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, to start with, so so what about social media do you find so rewarding? Yeah. Uh, well, first, I mean, I think a, a you know maybe a service level answer is. I mean, it, it it is fun. I mean, it you know, it's fun interacting with with new people. Um, you make you make real friends uh, online, uh, people you might never meet uh, in real life, uh, and you know them. You, you, when you know you know their at least their online behavior, and it's a social place, and it's and it's fun. I mean, it really is fun. You get to know certain people's personalities, and um, there's lots of jokes going back and forth. Uh, so. For sure, it, it, it's lots of fun. Um, uh, it's also a place, uh, at least, especially when I first started with Twitter. And I'm, I'm going to probably focus mostly on Twitter because, to be honest, uh, I, I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Um, I go through phases. And in, in the past, I would say, year, I just haven't really been active on Facebook at all. Um, but I still check it, you know, at least at least once a day. Um, but um, the other thing I, I, I like about Twitter uh, is how much I learn. I mean, I learned so much about other people's research and especially about methods and controversies. And, um, you know, so we're, we're both kind of tapped into this um, open science reform movement. And it seems like the heart of the reform movement is online. It's on social media. And um, so there's a real community there. And, uh, there are, you know, there's camaraderie and, and people helping each other out. And it, But it's just like, you know, I learn. I learn so much, uh, uh, you know, reading blog posts. Uh, so people on Twitter will link to, to articles and blog posts or even podcasts. And I just learn a lot and I, that I would not have otherwise uh, been exposed to. Um, and that's amazing. Yeah. So do you uh, post to Twitter a lot as well? Or are you just mostly lurking and, you know, reading the articles? And I'm certainly reading a lot more uh, and lurking a lot more than I'm posting, but I post every day. Um, and there's some days that I'm more active than others. I'm typically those are the days I don't like. If I'm, if I'm on social media too much, I, I'm, I'm angry with myself uh, because it means I haven't gotten a lot, a lot of work done. Um, but uh, again, I go through faces as well. I, I, there, were, there were faces where I was uh, much more active and getting into conversations and, and fights even. Uh, um and uh, criticizing people or defending people who are being criticized, uh, really kind of getting right in there. Um, and in my moderating the Facebook group days, whoa, geez, I was I was the moderator. I was the referee. Um, so I was, by definition, involved in every fight, which, you know, in the early days, um, that was once a week, once every two weeks. Some of them were major and very stressful. Um, so, uh, but nonetheless, a, a great place, you know, to, to be exposed to ideas and, you know, fairly active. I, you know, like I said, I probably scaled back a, a little bit lately. And now I just, I mostly check, check my mentions. Um, 
And uh, if I have a little bit of time, I'll scroll my my newsfeed. But I haven't been, at least in the past, you know, few months, not as active. Yeah. So, how much time would you say that you spend on Twitter, like uh, the average day? It's hard to tell because it's I'm, I'm checking pretty regularly. Um, <laughs> you too much to count. That's the answer. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a lot of li- you know. Many occasions, but short amount of amount of time for each occasion. Um, but there are times where I just have it open in the background, like for the first hour. But I, I'm literally kick myself off of it at nine thirty practically every morning. So I give myself an hour to check. But even then, I'm getting my kids to school. I'm commuting. I'm doing whatever, and I have like an hour. Or so, um, and, and what about you? What, what's your uh, what's your relationship with Twitter like these days? Uh, so Facebook, I'm done with, um, and I haven't messed at all. Now Twitter. Twitter, I have a more complicated relationship with because um, I felt like I was wasting a ton of time on it. And more than that, it was making me miserable. So if it's like I'm spending a ton of time on it, but I love it, okay. But it was like I would spend, you know, a couple hours in the evening on it and then I'd just be mad about everything. And it's like, this sucks. It's making me unhappy. I'm just going to like not close my account, but basically make an effort. Not to, not to check it at all. I check my mentions. I check my DMs, and that was it. Um, so, wh- uh, so it sounds like you are getting angry because of the content. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Because I mean, I get angry too, um, but most of my anger is gonna just fucking wait. I literally wasted the whole day on Twitter. Yeah. No, th- there was that that element uh, that I wasn't happy with how much time I was spending on it. But really, what what was making me mad was the stuff that I was reading. Um, and I did that for about, I want to say like two weeks. And then I started feeling like I was missing out on exactly what you mentioned. So this, uh, this methods and, um, new papers, all this discussion that happens on Twitter, um, that I felt like I was now, uh, foregoing and, and that like, I, I did feel like I was missing something. Um, so I did an experiment and I was like, well, you know, it may be that what I disliked about Twitter was like Twitter, the communications medium. But it may be that what I disliked was the people that I was following, right? And I was particularly following a bunch of uh, U.S. political accounts. Um, so politicians, uh, reporters, pundits, you know, people kind of involved in politics. And like U.S. politics is just such a shit show right now. There's like, what if I unfollow all those people and I'm only following people who are posting about like science and methods. Is that any better? So that's my new experiment. Um, One nice thing about that is it's so much lower volume that I can check like once a day for like, let's say 30 minutes and I'm like caught up. Like I've literally read every tweet. Um, And I feel like that's been mostly successful. Although I think that it's also allowed me to discover that there is also something wrong with with Twitter, the medium. And I'll just give you like one example of that. Um, so I don't know if you saw this about a week ago, there was all this stuff flying around about like open science bros. The, the point to me is like this sentiment, which like made me mad, is now floating around out there, like not attached to this original person, whoever they are. I'm not reading their original argument, which might be a lot more credit than it's being given credit for. Instead, there's just this idea that somebody said this thing that I think is stupid. I'm like, ah, those stupid jerks. You know, and that I feel like that's the stuff 
that Twitter amplifies, right? And it like encourages a kind of like passing around of the most inflammatory, um, enraging kind of content, often divorced from its original source. So you can kind of like see the people that you disagree with in their like kind of worst possible incarnation, even to the point of like, maybe nobody actually ever said it. Like, so, right. So I believe you that you actually saw this tweet, right. But like none of the people I asked could come up with like an original source citation for this stuff. And that's the thing that I feel like Twitter encourages that is like really toxic. And it's obviously worse when it's amplified by like political partisanship, for example, but in general, like the most kind of uh, button-pushing, kind of morally outrageous type of stuff is the stuff that gets amplified. There's a paper by, uh, what's his name, Will Brady and uh, Jay Van Bavel and some other folks that shows this, right? It's this stuff that pushes moral buttons that gets retweeted. Um, I have some data showing pretty much the same thing. Um, so the morally inflammatory stuff is the stuff that spreads more widely. Right. So the you know emotional terms. And in that paper and in your work, um, is it, because, you know, uh, morally evocative things to be positive and negative, right? So is it especially negative, like yeah. negatively valent stuff that gets passed more readily? Yeah, so I don't know about in the Brady at all paper, but in our data, certainly that's the case. Okay, so what gets what becomes viral or what becomes uh, you know liked and retweeted uh, tend to be things that are you know, uh, emotional in flavor, some moral norm violation and, and, and uh, violations are therefore negative. Yeah, exactly. So now the data that we have is looking at... Um, politicians in particular. And of course, politics is this intergroup conflict kind of context where you would expect that to be especially the case, right? But I think it's sort of, there's a lot of things that can become intergroup conflicts. So ideally, promoting better scientific practices. And I think we should talk, to be fair, about how social media has enabled those people um, the science reformers to find each other and to coordinate. Um, and I think that's a real benefit. But putting that aside for the moment, like that can become an intergroup conflict. Like it doesn't have to be one, but it can easily be like, oh, that those old guard people, you know, like they just want to like put out p hacked research and they don't want their legacies questioned. And then on the other side, it's like, who are these methodological terrorists who are human scum, human scum, unfairly criticizing bullies, blah, blah, blah. Right. So it like very easily becomes this intergroup context. And I think when that's true, true, um, then the most kind of outrageous, like moral button pushing stuff is this stuff that's going to like proliferate yeah. in that kind of a social network. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, I agree with all this stuff, um, uh, but we were supposed to be positive. Oh, shit. <laughs> I think it's a little bit hard because I think, I mean, I truly, truly am ambivalent about social media. Um, I feel positive about it. I mean, you know, economists talk about revealed preferences. You know, you can tell by you can tell what someone really, really likes by their behavior. And like, you look at my behavior. I love social media. I spend so much time on social media. Yet, if you ask me how I feel, I'm like, oh, I don't know, man. I, I, I this might be revealing. I, I, I wish I could be on social media less. Um, when I, whenever I go on holiday, I always have the intention of not checking social media, and I last like a day or two. Um. So, but nonetheless, you know, I, I do have, you know, uh, you know, I do have, you know, positive feelings about it as well. And we touched on one. I think maybe we should like talk about that because I think, um, I think it's so easy to talk negatively about it and shit talk uh, social media. Um, well, 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 hold on. I think that's, that's great. But I think this is a great spot to take a break and refill your beer, which is nearly empty. It is. And uh, yours is, uh, well, yours. I'm getting there. You're, you're getting there. 
fantasize Legalize it, yeah, yeah And I will advertise it Some call it And we're back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So it's probably, notwithstanding all my quitting Twitter talk, um, probably easiest to contact us on Twitter, where you can at mention us at Four Beers Pod. You can DM us whether we follow you or not. If you prefer to email, uh, Four Beers Pod at gmail.com is the email address that will go to both me and to Mickey. And finally, our website, as always, is fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can listen to current and past episodes. You can send us a message via the website as well. Um, it really helps us if you rate and review us on iTunes because it helps other people discover the show. So if you haven't yet and you have a moment, please just go do that. Any other things that we should be telling our listeners right now, Mickey? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, just keep, keep the comments coming. Um, we, yeah, we still regularly get DMs from our listeners and I, I, I find them delightful. Mickey has an orgasm every time <laughs> you DM the podcast account. So keep it up. Uh, that might, you know, disincentivize people, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I really do enjoy, uh, you know, communicating with our listeners. So, uh, if you want to chat with us, uh, we're, we're happy to do that. Right on. Uh, Mickey, do you want to tell our listeners what we're drinking for the second half? Yeah, so we're still working with Blood Brothers. And I got to say, I love their logo. They, their logo is um, kind of a black background and a, and a, and a gold uh, hand. Uh, and it looks like a stigmata, you know, in the center, like kind of blood, uh, blood dropping. And the, the brewer is called Blood Brothers. Um, and uh, so I've got a, uh, something called The Waiting Ones. It's a dry IPA. Uh, it's a notable because it's... Uh, 7.5%. And I, I'm wondering if this is actually discontinued because on the website, you, can't, you can no longer find uh, information about this specific beer. But on the label, it's clear that um, uh, there's some wine elements in here. Uh, you know, it says with Chablis and El Dorado and Nelson, which I, I'm not sure exactly what those things are. <laughs> it sounds like wine, but it might not be. I have no idea. And what are you drinking? Nice. Uh, I'm drinking the Inner Eye, which is a pale ale, 5.5% alcohol. Yeah, on the website it says, uh, it describes it as yeast forward. Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, what everybody wants <laughs> in life, more yeast. So, uh, yeah, shall we, shall we give this a try? Mm. Well, that's really good. It does taste yeasty. Yeah. It's like mm, drinking bread dough. Hmm. Uh, I kind of like it. All right. Excellent. Um, so uh, again, thank you, Stephen Want, for uh, yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, so generous. Um, all right. So, Yoel, we are uh, we left our conversation off. We had 
our plan was to talk positively about social media. And, and it seems like we, every time we would say something nice, you'd be like, but it sucks. It really sucks. So uh, let's, for 20 minutes or five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it is, uh, let's, let's say something nice about social media. Yeah, let's do it. So I've heard it said that the reason that the current methods revolution in uh, psychology really caught fire was social media. So that's the, you know, these these concerns are are, are not new. Um, so people have been talking about power uh, and insufficient power in psychological research since the 60s. Um, there's been sort of a recurring uh, worry about, you know, we are harking, we're running underpowered studies, um, we're not a cumulative science, and all of this stuff kind of faded away again. And I think uh, it's inarguable that this time is different. Um, and I, I think some uh, kind of people who've been through this a few times are, are a little too uh, willing to dismiss this as yet another thing. And I, I don't think it is. I think this is really um, uh, a sea change for us. And the argument is, you know, what, what changed in part is that like the people who were interested in this stuff and in doing things better were able to organize and to find each other and to talk to each other and to coordinate on social media. Um, and when kind of traditional avenues of criticizing research or research practices were closed um, because powerful gatekeepers weren't interested in those criticisms. Uh, social media provided an alternative forum where people could make their concerns known and kind of bring pressure to bear on, on these uh, slow-moving, kind of more conservative institutions. So I think a prime example would be Brian Wansink, um, who it was recently announced is actually resigning in the next academic year. Um, and, you know, you don't have the counterfactual of like, how would this have looked without Twitter and blogs? Um, but I think it's, I'm pretty confident saying like, look, you write your polite letters to the editor pointing out um, errors or problems. And, you know, best case scenario, they politely tell you to fuck off. Uh, worst case scenario, they you know, actually tell you to fuck off, right? They, they just have zero interest, right? Like, what is the journal editor's interest in, in correcting the record in that case, right? It pisses off the author of the paper. It makes the journal look bad. Most importantly, it's extra work for the editor, right? Like, they're just motivated to make it go away. Um, and how do you uh, get around that is you exert pressure some other way. You make those journals embarrassed to have those papers still um, standing unretracted. And uh, social media is a way to allow you to do that and then to get in touch with uh, reporters who will write stories, who will make this stuff like public and, and kind of like make these people ashamed. Um, so I don't think that that would have gone down the same way if it had not been for Twitter and for blogs um, allowing people to get the word out in that way. Um, and I, I think like all my complaining aside of like how I personally, you know, don't like this stuff, like you do have to, you have to count that as a big positive. Yeah, that that, that is huge. Um, I think social media is amazing if you are not powerful. If you are marginalized or have a marginalized voice, um, it really flattens the playing field. Uh, it democratizes information to some extent because anyone can tweet. 
and anyone can follow anyone who's tweeting. Um, really, it's a, a fairer, I don't want to say it's fair, but it's a fairer marketplace of ideas. Um, and as a result, you know, minority voices, minority opinions um, can gain traction. And in the case of the science reform movement, um, it wasn't only that minority voices can gain traction. It was a way for minority voices to find other like-minded minority voices. So I think what's different now from, let's say, the 60s, you know, it wasn't just Paul Me you know, Paul Meal talk screaming into the void. It's just him. Um, now there are, you know, all kinds of people. And yeah, it's true, they're still screaming to avoid the internet, but they're heard. They're heard by thousands and thousands of people. And um, it allows for communities to be built in disparate locations and for real movements to happen. And, and I credit social media with that, uh, like 100%. I mean, I, I don't think, I think what you said is exactly right. I think, um, so I've heard it, um, uh, I've heard it uh, uh, be said that uh, the Arab Spring, this kind of revolution that happened in, what is it, the early 2000s, I guess? Um, about, about 10 years ago now, I think. Um, you know, these revolutions, these quiet revolutions in, in, in Egypt and Tunisia and Libya uh, and a number of other places, um, that this was aided by social media, that, that in fact, you know, uh, 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 protesters could actually connect with one another and they wouldn't otherwise be able to connect with one another because the government would allow them to, to actually assemble. But through social media, through this kind of distributed network, all of a sudden these, you know, uh, disparate groups of people can gather together and all of a sudden you realize, wow, there's thousands and tens of thousands of people here who are supporting this cause. So I think it's led to uh, the changing of power dynamics. And that's, I think, it can be a net positive. Yeah. So I think it's uh, interesting that you're sort of taking this out of the scientific uh, realm to the the political Um because, you know, there is a, a, a like a strain of like left wing think piece that says, you know, this is a bad thing. Uh, so uh, in the National Post, you actually sent me this article. I didn't know it. Um, Jonathan Kay wrote uh, a piece on the tyranny of Twitter, colon, how mob censure is changing the intellectual landscape. And basically the argument that he makes is that there's, you know, small, numerically small groups of extremists who can exert a lot of leverage and get um, primarily left-wing, you know, institutions or you know, institutional figures to to dance to their tune, um, regardless of whether they're you know right on the merits, um, because they harness this sort of internet outrage, they're able to to exert a lot of power. Um, and I guess my question to you would be: Will do you see a tension between? that argument and what we were just saying about uh, the way that open science reformers have used Twitter to exert leverage, right? Isn't this exactly what uh, the, you know, using Susan Fisk as a stand here, the Susan Fisks of the psychological research world would say like, look, it's this small group of loud people. They don't speak for everybody. And yet they're exerting all of this influence and that's a problem. So if we like those people, are we obliged also to like in the political realm like a small group of activists who's amplifying their their voices via Twitter. Yeah, I, I worry that there's nothing principled here at all, right? That if you're on the side of the loud minority, you're like, great, empowering minorities, sounds awesome. And if you're on the side of the majority who's being criticized, you're like, you know, these 
uh, destructive loudmouths who are, you know, unfairly bullying people, even though they're not right and they're not the majority. And it's just like they they're just loud. And so they get all this influence. Like, I don't know that you can actually have a principled position on this. I, I almost feel like it depends entirely on like, you know, <laughs> which group you like more. I think it's true. I, th I think Twitter amplifies these fringe voices. And depending where you stand on that fringe voice, that could be a positive or a negative. But, it, but I, I don't think inherently it's, it's, it's good or bad. Um, but it can empower powerless people. Yeah, but if those people have wrong, bad ideas, then <laughs> that's not a good thing, right? Like, you know, if you're like, well, it empowers, you know, ISIS, I, yeah, ISIS or, or white supremacists or what have you, then that's obviously bad. Like, I don't know that, like, I think this is one of those things where, like, being generally on the left, we're like, oh, empowering the powerless, great. You know, like, just, it just reflexively, like, we like that. It's like, well, that's kind of neutral, actually. It really depends who the powerless group is. Do we like them or do we not? Yeah, yeah, my, I, I agree. Just because some voice or some person or group is in the minority doesn't mean they're necessarily right. <laughs> some people are marginalized for good reason. They should be marginalized. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm okay, so I, I feel like, you know, we're dying to like just dig in and start criticizing because even in our positives, we were criticizing. So like, let's just, let's just give her. I mean, I feel like I said all of my criticisms already. Like it, it sucks you into consuming kind of the worst examples of the misbehavior of the other side because that's what gets spread around. Right. Kind of the most extreme histrionic moral posturing from your side because again, that's what gets spread around. And uh, it just like for me personally, I would read it and I would get mad, and it would not bring out my best self. Oh, and also, and this is Twitter-specific, um, because of the character limits, like, you can easily be misunderstood. Mm -hmm. So that combined with the fact that it's public, and I do think that people express themselves differently when they know they have an audience, um, means that if you have a dialogue with somebody who disagrees with you, it's easier for that to go wrong on Twitter. Um, and I actually tried an experiment along those lines where um, a friend of the podcast, Mike Sargent, um, on his podcast, Tatter, uh, his most recent episode, which, by the way, I recommend that uh, you guys listen to, was about affirmative action in higher education. I listened to it. I had some disagreements. And I was like, well, I, I think I would have added, ad messaged him on Twitter um, before I was you know, cutting back on it. And I was like, I'm just going to email him instead. So I like wrote up my thoughts. I sent it to him. We had a great back and forth. Like I, I think I cc'd you, Mickey, and I, I think it was really like useful and informative. And it was better. It's better to be able to just write out your thoughts without worrying about a character limit. It's better to just write them out and be like, you know, I don't know about this. I could be wrong. Like here's how I feel. Right. That kind of, you know, uh, uncertainty that like Twitter doesn't reward at all because you know you're writing for an audience. And so like you feel the need to make it seem like you know what you're talking about all the time. Um, I just feel like on the whole, it was so much more productive at like finding where we agreed and disagreed um, than, than having hashing this out in public. It, it just seems like, why? Why would you do that? Yeah. Twitter is so performative, right? I mean, it's like you're doing it for the audience. You're doing it for the, the likes and the retweets. And the actual message is almost incidental sometimes, right? You're doing it to, to, to get a reaction sometimes. Sometimes there's earnest conversation, but, but other times not so much. Um, so um, 
you said something that I that that, that reminded me of this 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 really beautiful essay that we both read uh, a month or two ago uh, about this notion of um, Twitter rewarding confidence or social media maybe rewarding confidence, rewarding um, certain kinds of voices. And this is a really beautiful essay. We'll, we'll put it on in our show notes, uh, but it was written by a philosopher named Amy Ulbering, who kind of wrote this last blog post as a farewell to social media. And I, I think uh, she was counting blogging as part of social media, which I guess I guess that makes sense. Um, and she was like, this is it. I'm out uh, because this is not for me. Um, and so I want to read from it because it's so beautiful and every word is perfect. So I don't want to butcher it with my own interpretation. So I'll read, let me read a couple of, couple of passages. Um, so, so too. Online discussions often favor the quick and agile, the aggressive and insistent. People who like, or at least can ably engage, the rough and tumble of agonistic back and forth. And most of all, those who are confidently certain. Honestly, the rough and tumble mostly makes me sad, and I often have a shortage of a certainty. Reading both social media and blog conversations among philosophers, I often feel demoralized. The people who speak most and most insistently seem not only to be absolutely clear about what they think, but think there is no other legitimate, respectable, or even moral way to think. My trouble is usually not that I think otherwise, but that I don't entirely know what I think. And not knowing what to think is itself sometimes cast as shameful. In too many contexts, to confess confusion or uncertainty is to confess, to confess deficiency. Sometimes in philosophical acumen, sometimes in smarts, sometimes in moral clarity, sometimes even in basic humanity. Um, and then she goes on. I'll just add one little bit here. Um, I do understand that calls for civility can be weaponized to stifle opposing views and expressions of right, righteous anger. I understand that calls for civility can work as but tone policing. But I don't know what to do with that, assuming, assuming we want more than dialogue in the unrestrained fashion of cage matches that leave all bloodied, and assuming, assuming we want to interact with more than those whose certainties mirror our own and offer no complicating confusions. I likewise worry that we grow so cynical about civility that we assume its only motivation can be to stifle and police. Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, it, it's, it's a nice essay. It, it, it goes on. Um, and I just feel it captures, uh, it captures my feelings uh, to some extent about um, what social media selects for. Yeah. Uh, no, I like this piece a lot too. Um, I do think, you know, people talk about civility. Um, and to me, that's a little bit the wrong way to, to think about it. Um, so, I'm not not that I'm against civility per se, um, but civility is sort of like, well, you know, I mean, I I know that you're wrong, but I'm going to be nice about my disagreement. And to me, it's a deeper issue of like, how are you so sure that you're right? Um, so uh, the latest very bad wizards um, talked about this um, about a, an article by a philosopher where he examined this problem of like. Look, you have your moral convictions, but you know lots of people have different moral convictions, and lots of those people are smart and well-informed and thoughtful. So 
how do you act on your moral beliefs knowing that you could very well be wrong? And he actually, the unfortunate thing is there's not, <laughs> it doesn't give a great answer. Um, I didn't actually read the article. I just listened to the podcast episode, but I was like, yeah, how do you? And it's like, well, you know, you kind of have to just like fake it. It's like, uh, well, <laughs> it's not really what I wanted, what I wanted to hear. But like, how am I just saying? I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Right. And uh, faking it, that's the opposite of what you should be doing. Uh, yeah, I, I know. I, I mean, I don't know. May, maybe before I go criticizing, I should actually read the thing he wrote, but, but whatever. My point is just like, look, I think a little humility is worthwhile in that like, you know, how are you so sure that you're right? And like, it would be kind of miraculous if you happen to come up with a morally right answer about all of today's important questions, like really like what are the odds that that's the case, right? And if you're like, well, maybe I'm wrong about 25% of my beliefs or pick your percentage, then how do you know which ones, right? Um, and that's, that. I, I think when she talks about certainty, that that's part of my problem with with this online discourse that kind of rewards that is that, um, a, you're going to amplify the people who are dispositionally more certain. But uh, almost worse, you train people to express themselves and to think in that way, right? Because if, as you say, people are responding to the likes and the retweets and the whatever, um, you kind of push people to do that more and more because they learn that's what gets a response. You know, that's what my followers want. Um, and I think it's only natural to to respond to that sort of you know operant conditioning by doing more of the thing that gets rewarded, right? Um, but I, I see this. I, um, you know, not to name any names, but like I, I know people who I think are very smart and thoughtful, and then I look at their social media presence. I'm like, wow, you're really presenting yourself as like, kind of a dismissive authority, you know? And it's like, well, I, I know you're not actually like that, but somehow that's like the pressure that that you know it exerts. That's the direction it pushes you in. Yeah, this this kind of perverse um, incentive. We talk about perverse incentives in in in, in science. And in science publishing, and I think there's a preserve, perverse um, selection pressure in social media. It rewards, it rewards the witty, angry, um, sarcastic, aggressive, confident tweets. Yeah, and and those are not tweets that are con- going to convince anybody who uh, disagrees with you. They are uh, tweets that your in group is going to like, right? And really, this is about it's a medium that rewards catering. Uh, preaching to the choir, right? Catering to the base, um, riling up the people who agree with you already, rather than trying to convince people who aren't a hundred percent on your side. Right. So that's actually, you know, maybe a good segue to like an, uh, I think, a serious problem with social media, in that it, it creates bubbles, right? It creates this um, this curated community. We talked about like the positive it creates community. That's really nice. But unlike, you know, real communities. Um, communities online are, I think, ideologically homogeneous, or they they are they're more ideologically homogeneous than, let's say, communities in, in in the real world. Where I mean, at least on certain issues, right? So, for example, I think our at least our social media world is dominated by at least mine is dominated by you know science Twitter. Um, and in science Twitter right now, at least, is you know uh, the reform movement is that dominates that that voice. But you know, it it I'm always aware that that voice, and it seems like whenever you go on, it's, everyone's talking about science reform, science reform, open science, and changes and problems, etc. Uh, 
the minute you step out of that, you know, all you have to do is go to a faculty meeting or go to a conference and you realize, whoa, um, I had the wrong idea about how um, normative my beliefs are, um, how, uh, how, you know, how many other people actually agree with me. Um, you realize, I mean, I, I, I estimate, you know, if you go to uh, another meeting in social psychology, the, the open science, you know, kind of ideology is, I think it's the minority view. Yeah. Yeah. So certainly you can, uh, it can exacerbate your already existing tendency to believe that other people believe what you do, right? Um when it comes to politics, the, I saw uh, kind of the abstract of a paper recently that uh, I'll dig up and we can put in the show notes. And I may be misremembering this a little, but basically what they did is an experiment where they assigned some people to see um, tweets, I think it was, from the other side. Um, so stuff from outside their bubble. And actually, it didn't make things better. It made things worse, right? So they got even more extreme because they're like, look at what those jerks are up to. Look how wrong they are, right? So so um, I guess the only point that I'm trying to make there is that people talk about this like filter bubble thing in sort of a simplistic way. If only people were exposed to more information, things would be better. Maybe not, right? Maybe once we've divided into these warring tribes, seeing what the other tribe is up to actually makes us even more reactive against them. Okay, that's a really interesting point, and, and, and I want to push back a little bit. Um, I think you're right, um, but I think you're right in a specific way. Um, I think what you just said, you know, being exposed to other ideas um, uh, leads to more polarization. I think that's right for social media. I, I wonder if that's correct in the real, in, 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 in the real world, where... Um, uh, you know, in the real world, it's much more difficult to express moral outrage. It's much more costly, actually, to express moral outrage. And as a result, you don't express it and you might not even feel it. And then you might even sit with the views of your neighbor or your, you know, your, your, your fellow church attendee or synagogue attendee. Um, and, uh, and maybe that, that affects you in some way. You're less likely to, in other words, to, to completely shut them out. Yeah, I think that's totally right. So if it's a face-to-face -face interaction or even a one-on-one -on -one interaction via email or something like that, um, I think it's, uh, you know, you don't get this kind of like stereotyped view of the most extreme attributes of the other side, which, which I think, again, social media promotes that, the most extreme views, right? You kind of get more of the nuance and the complexity. And so I think we're like our last episode, right? We had Clay on. Uh, Clay Routledge, um, and he's uh, you know not quite as liberal as probably the mainstream in in the social sciences. He's a really interesting guy with an interesting background, like a very kind of um, diverse set of beliefs. And when you talk to somebody one on one, you you realize that right. You realize that they're more than this two dimensional caricature. Um, you don't get that from tweets from the other side. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So this this is this reminds me so much of this paper that I love um, by Molly Crockett, uh, who's a, I believe assistant professor at uh, Yale University. Um, she wrote this paper last year, "Nature of Human Behavior." I think it was called uh, 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 "Moral Outrage in the Digital Age" or something like this. Um, and uh, she has a really nice uh, thesis. I, I highly recommend this paper. It's short, so I think a lot of our readers can read it. Um, um, and um, 
Uh, she essentially makes the point that, uh, well, moral outrage is actually a useful emotion. Um, you know, shaming and punishing wrongdoers is a good thing. It's how we, uh, it's how our societies and, and, and groups have worked uh, for millennia. Um, and it's been an effective way for, for, for groups to coordinate actions um, and to hold bad actors accountable, of course. But it has a dark side, and that is that it can be overused, right? And the argument she makes is that social media, it, it, it makes it too easy to express moral outrage, okay? Because in the real world, there are real costs to expressing moral outrage. Well, number one, it, it's, it's hard. It's effortful. So you have to like, um, if you want to, you know, condemn someone, you might write a letter, you might have to go up to them, um, you might physically be near them, um, and you just might not be willing to do that um, because there are consequences of physically being near someone and criticizing them. They could criticize you back. They could be physically aggressive. Um, so there's, you know, there, there are costs that, are, that, that, that don't exist uh, with social media. Um, and, uh, you know, also... Uh, she argues that social media, because it's so easy to do, or it's not as hard to do, and there are fewer fewer um, negative repercussions for doing it, um, that it becomes habit-forming. It actually becomes an habitual response to start shaming people or punishing people or criticizing people or even just liking and retweeting people who are doing that to other people, right? Um and then the outcomes is that, you know, you know, you have fewer retaliation costs. You don't want to feel empathy for the person you are uh, criticizing or shaming because you don't see them. You, you know, uh, their emotions won't, you know, you won't catch their emotions. Um, and there are personal benefits, right? There are like other people of your tribe will like you. And actually, you'll probably gain a much bigger following, actually. you probably gain a lot more followers by doing this habitually. Um and and you don't have the same social costs. So so in real life, there are there are costs to engaging in moral outrage that are not there in social media, or at least they are uh, they're they're significantly muted. Um, in fact, in fact, she she even looked at a kind of secondary analysis of some data, and she found ex exactly that that people are much more likely to express moral outrage online. Um, and most likely because it's easier, they're not these social costs. Um, so, I mean, again, moral outrage is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, again, let's, let's go back to science criticism. We want to be criticizing, um, you know, bad work. Um, but the ease with which you can do it and, and, and the sometimes the, the, the flippancy with which you can do it uh, and then the pylon that happens at afterwards um, it feels terrible for the, you know, for the, the person doing it. And you, you have no... There's less. You're less likely to be empathic uh, to the people you're doing it with because there's such a massive distance between you and them. Yeah, I I think this gets to a point that's right on, which is um, we evolved our moral intuitions in an environment that's very unlike the environment in which we find ourselves now. Uh, so, are those kind of moral intuitions and I guess impulses um, uh, to blame? Um, to pile on, to express outrage, are, are those going to make us happier people? Or are they going to make our society a better functioning society? There's really no reason to think that they should, right? Like they were evolved to do a certain thing. We're now in a very different world. Um, and they may well push us to do things that are actively harmful to ourselves and, and to other people. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I think as we're kind of, this, you know, it's, social media is still relatively new and we're still figuring this out. And, um, 
enough people complain about this and enough people like they aren't necessarily targets of shaming or pylons. Although you hear these famous stories of this happening. It's terrible. Like especially the, the woman Janine Sacco who like goes on a plane to Africa for some work thing. And she does a stupid little tweet. That's a bad joke. She's 170 followers. She lands in Africa and it's like, it's been retweeted a million times and she's shamed and eventually fired. Um, so that's an extreme story of like what, you know, bad things that happen in social media, but enough people witness these things that they just find it unsavory. They find it like, I, I, I don't want to be in a place that's so conflict prone. And that reminds me of what you said. Like, you know, you were saying that you spent like, you, you found yourself just really being angry. And that's because you're seeing people fight with each other, disagree so fundamentally about things. And where, I mean, there are some things people just disagree on and that, you know, and what can you do? But it seems like, there could be a middle ground somewhere in a lot of the disputes that we have, um, and they don't seem to get resolved. They seem to get aired and you know on public, but not, but hardly ever resolved. Yeah, I mean, all of this is so new, and like if you think about, you know, we evolved to like fucking find fruit and and kill antelopes and shit, right? And so the idea that like we have any sort of uh, innate ability to deal with Twitter is just ridiculous, right? And so I, I feel like there's a lot of experimentation going on. Um, and there's no reason to think that, um, you know, inherently that any of this stuff is going to be good for us. Um, and it could well be that this stuff is like very destructive in a way that we haven't quite, you know, discovered yet. And it turns out that maybe it pushes all the wrong buttons, right? Maybe it brings out all of our worst characteristics. Yeah. So I once, I, I, I forget the source now of this, but I thought it was perfect. Um, I heard an analogy about Twitter specifically, uh, comparing it to a drug. So that's, you know, it's a, you know, trite at this point, it's done so often, but comparing it to being an addict of the worst possible drug you can imagine. Um, that being one that's incredibly addictive, but actually when you're high sucks, like it doesn't, it doesn't even feel good. So I, mean, I never, huffed gasoline or sniffed glue or anything like that. But I imagine the high can't feel that good. Maybe it does. I have no clue. But um, and, but yet kids are, or some kids at least are drawn to it. So, you know, you know, Twitter is like the huffing gasoline of drugs um, is, you know, essentially the, 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 the analogy I heard. And that fits for me. I mean, you know, I am addicted. I, I have devices. I literally have devices. I have like an A, the equivalent of the AA for um, for Twitter, which is like these, you know, these devices that keep me off Twitter. Um, and when I'm on Twitter, I'm like, fuck, why the fuck am I on this? I'm wasting time. I should be working. Um, I'm seeing these people fight. And and even, the th you know, I'll, I'll admit this, like even the science reform stuff, which, you know, is the main reason I'm on Twitter, I get sick of that shit too. I get sick of hearing the same old things over and over and over again. Um, and, you know, we were complaining before about the science bro thing. I mean, I get that. I understand that because I see just, maybe not, maybe not like dude so much, but just like this kind of aggressiveness that I don't like. Yeah. Um, I think there's also a certain type of person who's particularly vulnerable to it. And uh, I know I'm that kind of person. Like I, I see a Twitter dispute. I'm like, I have to know everything about this. I have to <laughs> like read up on every aspect of this. I have to read every thread. I have to, you know, find out everything about what every party in this dispute like 
thinks and believes. And I, I think there's lots of people who are like, eh, you know, so it's, it's partly knowing your vulnerabilities, you know, like I know I can handle alcohol, but if I have one cigarette, I'm going to have like 20 and then I'm going to throw up. So like, I'm not, I, I don't allow myself to have cigarettes around because I know they're bad for me. And I, are we going to smoke after this podcast or? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will smoke them all just to, just to let you know. Um, so yeah, there's, there's certain things where you're like, this is just bad for me. And I know I'm the kind of person that's particularly bad for. And uh, so I just got to stop. Yeah. Um, and you know, so I, I'm involved with this. Um, uh, so, you know, I do re research on self-control and people just email me, but sometimes about collaboration. And this one Danish guy who's actually a, um, a brilliant guy, a computer scientist at, at Oxford. And he was in Toronto when he came to visit me and he's like, he's, he's done this, uh, this really cool research um, examining the, the landscape of apps that are out there to help people with, he doesn't use the word, you know, uh, let's say social media addiction, but essentially people who have problematic uses of social media. And I didn't realize this, but there are hundreds and hundreds of apps out there to help people control their social media use, um, which suggests that there are millions of people who have problems with it. I mean, they they realize it's they like it and they like it too much and it's interferes with their work. Um, it interferes even maybe with the relationships like in, in the real world. Um, and there, you know, there's a market, there's a, you know, a, you know, a, a very lucrative market out there for apps to help people control this, you know, this behavior. Um, so again, that's again, revealing something. Yes. Yeah. These, this, you know, uh, Facebook and, and Twitter have hired people to make this addictive. And now we're kind of coming back and trying to, trying to make it, uh, more user-friendly or human-friendly. Yeah, so this is something that um, like Google and Apple are actually building into the operating systems. Uh, I know iOS 12 has like uh, screen time reports where it tells you here's how long you've been spending in different apps. It allows you to set limits. Like if I'm in, I think it's down to the app level. So if I'm in Twitter for too long, you can lock me out of it, right? So I, it's you know it's weird in, in in two ways. First, it's like strange to think of a product maker trying to encourage you to use the product less, right? Um, and secondly, man, if I were Twitter or Facebook, I would worry. I would worry if my users were like, I really do not want to be using this thing because that seems like long term, it's not going to go well for you, right? Yeah, yeah that, that is weird. Um, that really, really is weird. I mean, and you're right, they built it this way. I mean, so um, uh, I think what they're doing is they're hijacking. And I, I think, that, you know, before I say what I'm about to say, I, I think this notion of like X is an addiction is overused in our culture. Like, I mean, chocolate is an addiction or whatever it might be. I think we overuse it. And I don't think social media is an addiction. I don't think email is an addiction. But it seems to to, to scaffold on, on on some natural proclivities that we have as humans. So, you know, um, so Kent Berridge, uh, who's a behavioral neuroscientist, talked about um, two, you know, primary positive affect systems. They differentiate between a wanting system and a liking system. So wanting relates to craving, to anticipation. So having a mental map of something will occur at a certain time, and it might be positive. So when you get a notification, you get a little buzz in your in your pocket. You're like, ooh, 
something good or potentially good. But as you mentioned, it's like one out of a hundred times is good. 99% of the time it's either neutral, a waste of time, or downright negative. Oh shit, another review request. Or like or, be on this committee. Yeah, be on this committee. Exactly. <laughs> Will you do more work for us? Will you give me more advice? Um uh, and then once in a while you get you know, you get something positive. Um and 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 we're built, we're 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 so built that, that wanting system is so attuned that now it's a common thing. If I'd mentioned to you, you know, phantom, you know, like notification syndrome, you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, yeah. The rubbing, that kind of weird, yep, oh, I think yep. my phone just vibrated. And I'm not even wearing a phone. Why do I have a vibration in my pocket? Um, and that's, you know, that's built from this, you know, anticipation. So, you know, uh, according to Ken Berge's theory, drugs, um, what they do is they amp up the wanting system, this craving, this craving and want, real, you know, true desire of the thing. But the actual enjoyment, the, the actual hedonic pleasure you get out of the thing, so he talks about drugs, actually goes down. And it goes down just because you habituate. You know, you've been drunk how many thousands of times in your life? Well, it's not that fun to be, well, it's not that it's not as fun anymore. Um, you've been on the drug how many times just, you don't enjoy it as much as you used to, but you still want it. So you get a common experience among addicts of really, really wanting the thing, but when they get that thing, they're like, eh, whatever. And what I just described, I feel characterizes social media as well, where you just kind of like, I need to check. I need to check what is going on. And when you're on there, you're like, fuck, shoot me in the head. I just fucking spent another hour on social media and I got nothing done. I learned nothing new and I was exposed to five more people fighting with each other. Yeah. We're at a, sort of a strange um, juncture where there's all of this information floating around. So social media, emails, whatever. And our uh, technology can bring us that stuff, but it's not yet at a stage where it's able to make intelligent decisions about what we might care about. So how do you read Twitter? Is like you literally go through all the tweets. How do you check your email? You literally, you the human, look at every email that comes in. And Gmail does a little bit of this of being like, oh, this looks like you know a spam email or you know like a mailing list type thing that I'm going to put in a lower priority bucket. But it's still pretty basic, right? So I. The optimistic take is that 10 years from now, the computer is smart enough to be like, here's the five things I think you'll care about. Here's the other stuff that like, you know, you can get to when you have time for it. Right. So we're not the ones who are continually being like, did something come in? Did something come in? Right. And the computer is smart enough to prioritize it for us. But for the time being, yeah, this totally plays on our uh desire for the new exciting thing. And that that is so rewarding that it can survive a lot of like crap coming in without that like desire being extinguished, right? Like it really takes a very high ratio of like crappy stuff to rewarding stuff for it to go away entirely. So still with emails, I'm like, oh, maybe something good. It's almost never something good. Almost never. <laughs> almost never. <laughs> True. So this is really interesting, right? I, I I love what you just said because it turns the negativity bias on its head, right? And we've talked about this now a couple of times in, in, in the podcast where, you know, negative is supposed to be stronger than good. And if negative is stronger than good, none of us would be on social media, right? Because it's, mo I mean, at best, most of it's neutral um, and a lot of it's shit. And like well, every once in a while, you get a golden tweet or a golden email, uh, but it's so rare. Um, but yet we fucking can't stop looking at it. Yeah, so so maybe it's more about interest value. It's like the the possibility of something interesting is so 
uh, influential in our behavior that we're willing to tolerate a lot of stuff that's kind of like blah in order to like find that one interesting nugget. The likes. I mean, I can't, I, you know, I must, I'll, I'll tell you this. When I, so what, you know, we mentioned earlier in the show that, you know, I don't, I don't tweet that often. Um, uh, but when I do, hey man, I'm checking. I am. I'm checking the likes and the retweets. Um, and I want them to be more of them. But like, who actually cares? Like, does it really matter that like this thing got 10 stars or 10 hearts versus 100 hearts? Like, whatever. Yeah, we're we're built to care. We're built to care. We're, we're built to care about social. It's you know, it's leveraging the fact that we're social animals. Other people like this couple of sentences that I wrote, um, and I'm willing to to check obsessively uh, just so I you know get information about my social value in that moment. Yeah, so it's amplified by being social for sure. Um, there's uh, research from Krishi that shows that basically if you give people a metric, even if it's completely arbitrary, they're like motivated to maximize it, right? So it's like, oh, I can get more of this thing. Great. You know, and it's like they don't ask themselves, well, why? Like, what does more of this thing mean for me? I mean, I feel like we're the same way. Like, so you track the downloads mm. for the show, right? It's like, it kind of doesn't matter. Like, it's, <laughs> we don't get paid per listener or anything, right? So, like, as long as it's enough that we don't feel like we're talking to nobody, like, it kind of doesn't matter. But, I I mean, I do it, too. Like, I log into the site. I check how many people have downloaded the episode. Like, it's a metric that's presented to me. So, kind of automatically, I want us to do better on it, right? But hold on. So, I, I that's a really interesting uh, little factoid you mentioned. So, that's true for any metric? Or is it, does it need to be a social metric? So downloads is social, likes is social, retweets is social. Yeah, it's, um, I, I forget exactly what the experiment was, but it was a non-social metric. So how many fruits you collect in this exactly. game? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so it's game of, gamification. Yeah, yeah, you just want more of the thing, whatever it is. You put a number on it, you're like, oh yeah, no, I want more of that. That's so interesting. Um, yeah. That, that's, that's an interesting idea. We get more of a thing. That, that, I feel that's a podcast, an entire podcast episode right there. Yeah, we should save that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think, you know, we're, we're close to done beers. I'm pretty much done. I still, have, I still have half a beer left, but I'm going to, listeners, listen to me. I am going to finish this beer. Yeah. You know, I must say, like, it's a slightly different mood. Since it's a, we're recording on a Monday, and Mondays is not necessarily the day I feel like, I need to have some more beer. Um, that usually is like, I need to wait at least till Tuesday for that. Um, so I myself have been like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, you've been very chill. No shots. <laughs> no shots. Zero <laughs> shots, people. <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking about this on the ride over. Um, so really, our podcast started, uh, was it May, I think? Um, and then went through the summer, and now it's October. Um, and... Uh, I feel like, you know, the impression that our listeners might have, you know, uh, formed of us, of me, was like summer Mickey and Yoel. And, you know, I think we have uh, different faces for different seasons and uh, fall, maybe we'll be changing, you know, maybe having fewer sours and uh, different, some different beers and also our moods might be different in our drinking proclivities as well. Yeah, maybe a, less, a little less exuberant, a little less willing to party, a little more like, oh, I got to teach tomorrow. Yeah, I got to write a grant. I mean, that's what I'm doing tomorrow. I got to write this fucking grant. <laughs> yeah, that's what I got to do. Yeah, the last episode, I remember you were, you were laughing at me because I played hooky, uh, you know, doing uh, playing Frisbee golf. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, that hasn't happened in a while. 